Verse 129 to 136, the sermon will be an explication of Psalm 119, verse 136. You'll find that on page 654 in the Pew Bibles. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Yesterday, as a nation, we were privileged to celebrate the 156th anniversary of Confederation. It has been called Canada Day ever since 1992. Prior to that, July 1st was called Dominion Day. And I much prefer the old name of the day because it has biblical connections. In fact, a lot of the founding of our nation has biblical connections. It was called, for instance, the Dominion of Canada because Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley proposed that name after he read Psalm 72 verse 8, which in the King James Version speaks about the dominion of Christ being from sea to sea. And if you look at the Canadian coat of arms, you will see on the bottom there the Latin words amare usca ad mare, which means from sea to sea. There's also, of course, within the center of uh, the coat of arms, the words from Hebrews 11, for they desired a better country. And then, of course, there is the 1982 Constitution of Canada, which begins with this country is founded on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And perhaps some of you yesterday sang with other Canadians this prayer, God, keep our land glorious and free. But we are nowhere where we were in 1867. As a nation, we have moved substantially from our Christian, at least generically Christian, moorings. Those of us who name the name of Christ and considered it a privilege to live in this country, find it increasingly unrecognizable and progressively inhospitable. Our minds spin as we think of the swiftness with which our nation has turned its back on basic morality. Who would have thought years ago uh, that there would be so much sexualization of our children in primary schools and that uh, life would be considered so cheap that not only would they be taken away at birth, but it would even be offered to be taken away if you had some mental or physical illness. 
This is a country that has become increasingly disobedient. There is the unraveling of, Im- of morality and the ramping up of mor- immor- immorality within our nation. And the question I want to ask this morning is this. How should we respond to this? We are, of course, not the first people who have lived in wicked nations. In fact, that probably has been the history of God's people in most of the world throughout most of history. It's relatively few nations that have been distinctly Christian for any substantial length of time. We have always lived as Christians in the midst of an unbelieving and godless generation, as the Apostle Peter says. So how ought we to live? Well, I think that Psalm 119, the 136th verse, gives us the answer. The psalmist, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says this is how we should live in the face of wanton disobedience and reckless rebellion against God. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. That's the response of the people of God. So it's evident that we should be moved by the sin of the nation around us. Now, I think it's important to note, so that we do not burden ourselves too much, that the, 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 the requirement here is not specifically for streams of tears. Of course, some people tear easily and cry more easily and readily than others. Thomas Manton, the English Puritan, said it like this, all constitutions, that is, human constitutions, are, are not alike moist. A tender heart may be matched by a dry brain. And so though you might not cry over this, there certainly should be some sorrow and anguish. On the other hand, if you cry about a lot of things, then it would be entirely appropriate for you to cry about this, the fact that people do not keep God's law. And so there should be some anguish and sorrow There should be some grief. We should be burdened. We should feel within us a heaviness because God's law is not obeyed. That's certainly what the psalmist is telling us here. I shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The one thing we cannot be in the face of such rampant evil is unmoved. And you think, well, of course we wouldn't be. Well, that's not so easily considered. It is so easy for us to live in the midst of sin, in a world of rebellion, and to become so used to it because it's so commonplace that it doesn't even bother us anymore. It's just part of living in this world. It wasn't that long ago that we would have been shocked at homosexuality And now it has become so normal. We see it on television. We see it uh, prated before our eyes constantly that it hardly affects us anymore, or certainly it doesn't affect us like it used to. And so we should be careful here. It does need to be said that the sin of the nation around us should impact us. It should leave us touched, grieved, sorrowed, burdened, weighed down. Tears should stream from our eyes because people do not keep God's law. 
Well, why is that such a problem? Why should we weep over the wickedness and disobedience of the people around us? Now, I think this is an important question to probe and to explore, because if we do not weep, then we need to address this. If we're unmoved by the sin of the world, then we need to get our hearts aligned so that when we see wickedness, we can join with the people of God throughout history with their grief and sadness. So why should our eyes shed streams of tears? Well, let me suggest three reasons. First of all, because the honor of God is maligned. It's clear that people disobey God's law. They break His commandments in a myriad of ways. But the law of God is not something impersonal. It's not just a bunch of principles that are written down on stone, though they are written down on stone or were. But behind the law is the lawgiver, so that any disobedience to God's law is a rejection, not just of His commandments, but of God Himself, of His authority, of His sovereignty, of His mighty rule over all. Thomas Goodwin said it so well that you determine the sin of sin not by its action, but by its intention. And the intention of sin is always to ungod the great God. Sin is always an attempt at killing God, at destroying Him, so that uh, we join with Pharaoh and say, who is the Lord that we should obey Him? And so the honor of God is always at stake. It is a rejection of His authority. It is a maligning of His character. It is a rejection of His sovereignty over our lives. And we mourn, not because we feel sorry for God somehow, as if we need to pity Him because people are unkind to Him. Human sin and rebellion doesn't affect God whatsoever, any more than a snowball thrown at the sun affects the sun, because God is absolute holy, and He is without passions in any way. But we want the honor of God to be magnified among the nations. We want God to be praised and worshipped by all, because He is worthy of all praise and adoration as the great God and Savior. Certainly, that's what we believe. This was the missionary impulse behind so many of the Psalms. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Well, why would they be concerned about that? Well, because they knew who God was. And they knew that He deserved to be honored and acknowledged as the great God above all gods, the one true and living God, besides whom there was no other. And so when we see in our nation that God is relegated to the margins of society, no, not even that, when He's wiped completely off the page, when there is no regard given to Him, when there's no consultation of His Word, when there's no hesitation about breaking His commandments, we are concerned for the glory of God. We want Him to be praised and worshipped, not only by us, but by all peoples, because of His greatness and majesty. And so if your heart longs for the honor of God, 
If you long for God to be praised, not only here, but throughout the ends of the earth, then when you see Him disregarded and rejected, that fills you with pain and sorrow and anguish. And if, on the other hand, God means nothing to you, if He isn't worthy of all praise and adoration in your mind, well, then you won't care if your neighbors disregard His day if his laws are trampled underfoot, if his name is used as a swear word. That won't matter to you at all. But for those who love God and are concerned about his glory, we will have streams of tears flow from our eyes. You might remember I referred to Ezekiel 9. I believe it was last Lord's Day where where God calls the executioners of the city to, to come out and, um, and then he calls someone else to, to put a mark on his people so that the executioners don't destroy everybody, but only those who deserve to be destroyed. And the one who had to put the mark had to put the mark on the people who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. That is, the, dis- the distinctive characteristic of the people of God is that they sigh and groan because God's law is not obeyed, because God himself is not glorified. So that's the first reason. It's for the honor of God. That's why we're so burdened in living in this country of rampant wickedness. But there's another reason. And you can see it within the context here. Look at how the psalmist speaks about the love he has for God's law. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light and imparts understanding. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. And then notice verse 134, redeem me from man's oppression. He's somehow harassed by his enemies, and he wants to be released from them. Why? Not just for his own safety and happiness. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. So he has such a delight in the law of God. He recognizes it as pure and wonderful and perfect, having more perfection than anything else. He sees the law as a gift of a gracious God given to his people so that they might enjoy happiness under his favor. The law is good. It's perfect, as the Apostle Paul says. And sin is absolutely contrary to everything good and godly. So it's not just that he loves the law of God, but because he loves the law of God, he hates sin so much. He sees the devastation and ruin that sin has caused. I find this sometimes that uh, when I stand at a graveside and I see children, children of the deceased and grandchildren weeping so sad, and I think, what a terrible thing sin has done in this world. How cruel it is, how unkind, how wicked, how destructive sin is. And streams of tears flow from your eyes because you know that sin is against God. It opposes God. Sin is what caused the Lord Jesus Christ to give his life 
on the cross of Calvary. And it's sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. And if it has caused such hardship and grief, then when we see sin done, when we see, as we saw this last month, sin celebrated in our land, when wickedness is called good and good is called wickedness, what in the world could you do except shed streams of tears because people do not keep God's law? So it's because of the honor of God. It's because of love for the law of God. And then it's because of compassion for the lost. Now, compassion is not usually our first response when we see rampant sin. We have all kinds of other responses. There's, of course, pride. I thank God that I am not like other men are, these evildoers who disobey God's law. Or there's anger or indifference or even hatred. You, you wish they would just go off and off themselves and stop harassing me by their blatant wickedness. Or there's worry. If sin continues to get the upper hand in this country, what will that mean for me? You think about that sometimes when you think about the legislation that forbids the church to call sin, sin, as God does, or to help people who are in the throes of difficulties, sexual immorality, and struggles. But our response ought to be a response of compassion. We ought to weep because of the people around us who are disobeying God's law, and more than that, who are traveling quickly to an eternity without Christ and without God and without hope whatsoever. This was the response of our Lord Jesus as He came to the city of Jerusalem, and He saw Jerusalem, and He, he knew Jerusalem's rejection of Him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, He says, how, how often I would have gathered you to Myself as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but, but you would not. And and he knew the destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem, and it broke his heart. Or, or think of our Lord Jesus on the cross. Here he is, cruelly put to death, nails punched uh, through his hands and his feet, and, and uh, betrayed by his own countrymen, those whom he had come to save. And, and our Lord Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This heart of compassion and love. Or think about what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 18, as he, as he speaks about the enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, I say this with tears. And so we need a heart of compassion, of tenderness, of affection for the lost. We cannot be indifferent to their eternal plight. This has been, this has been the impulse of missionaries throughout the ages thinking about William Chalmers Burns, who one day was in the city of Glasgow, and, and uh, he was walking with his mother, and all of a sudden he disappeared, and his mother went to look for him, and, and she found him. He had turned aside into a side street, and she asked him, what's wrong? And he says, I just hear the, the, the pounding of these footsteps of thousands that are 
on their way to hell. And he just couldn't go on. He was so overwhelmed by the grief and the sadness of the thought of a Christless eternity for those around him. And think about that. Think about your neighbors. It's not just that they break the fourth commandment and are noisy on the Lord's day. Or it's not just that they're living unmarried together, but there are repercussions for their disobedience, an eternity unending judgment from a holy God. How could we be indifferent to this and unmoved by this? Well, we often are. We often look at unbelievers and think, I don't actually give a rip whether they go to heaven or hell. We can be so callous and so cold and so unmoved by their plight. So how do we cultivate compassion for the lost so that when we see people not keeping God's law, our eyes shed streams of tears? Well, I think first is to to recognize the power of sin. The power of sin in your own life, first of all. The power of sin that uh, had you in its grip until Christ came and by His Word and Spirit and through the gospel released you and brought you to freedom. But, But just think as a Christian how sins can still be such an enemy that is so hard to fight against and overcome. And you feel like... uh, you feel like a disaster at times as a Christian, like a, like a failure. You're, you're nowhere where you ought to be. You've been a Christian for 20, 30 years, and you're still struggling with the same old sin. Sin is so powerful. And then you, you look at those around you who are in the grip, dominated by sin, and you, you understand, don't you? You get why they do the things that they do. You understand why they can't stop self-destructive behavior, because sin is powerful, and sinners are weak. They have, they have no resources in themselves to overcome sin. We know that better than they know that. They just think that's life. We understand what's going on. We understand that there's a devil who is tempting them. We understand that power of sin that rules over them. They don't get it, but we do. And so we're sad We're compassionate for them. We're not indifferent. We feel for them. We understand. So you understand the power of sin, and then you understand the desert of sin. They, again, they don't understand that. Uh, Though in their heart of hearts, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, they know, the unbeliever knows that their actions will bring upon them the righteous judgment of God. But they've suppressed that. Their parents have suppressed that. Their grandparents, for generations, they've suppressed that. Our culture tells them that there's no repercussions for sin. Go do what you want. Do whatever you feel like doing. That's the world in which they live. But we know better. We understand because we've read the story of the rich man who was in torment in hell and wanted to be free. We understand what judgment of God is because we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, just collapsing to the ground, terrified at the experience of the wrath of God, and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if our Lord Jesus was so fearful of death because it meant the judgment of God, then certainly you feel for those who deserve to be punished at the hands of a holy God. So you understand, you think it through, what's awaiting the unbeliever who do not keep God's law, and tears stream from your eyes. So you think about the power of sin, you think about the desert of sin, and then you think, you think, you think about the mercy of God in Christ. You think, how in the world is it possible that God should rescue me and not him? Why should he save me and not her? What wonderful grace. What sovereign, discriminating love. What a wonder it is that God has mercy on anyone. And then to think that he's had mercy on me, it breaks your heart. It humbles you. And you cry out, O Lord, have mercy on the lost. Even as you were gracious to me while I was your enemy, alienated from you, rebelling against your holy laws, even as you had mercy on me, will you not have mercy on them? Compassion for the lost. And again, I I think that uh, this is not something that can be fabricated. If you do not care about the honor of God in your own life, you won't care about the dishonor of God in the lives of others. If you don't care about the law of God and strive with everything that is in it to live for the glory of God in obedience to His commandments, then it won't affect you whether your neighbor keeps God's law or not. And if you're indifferent and deny the reality of hell for yourself, you will not care about hell for others. And so really what this psalm reminds us is that the proper response to God's law, or the proper response to people breaking God's law is not something that can be fabricated. Our hearts must be right before God and concerned about God's honor, His law, and eternity before they will be ever concerned about the plight of others or the honor of God in our culture. So what we need to do is we need to pray that God would draw us to Himself, that He would give us a passion for Him, for His law, that He would give us a heart that overflows with thanksgiving and profound humility at His grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that will position us to look at the world around us, to weep for the honor of God, to pray for the lost, to seize opportunities, to to speak to our neighbors about the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, and to pursue the glory of God in all that we do. So may God give us His grace. May He pour out His Spirit upon us so that we might be what we ought to be, so that we might be useful for His glory and praise and for the blessing of those who do not keep God's law. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and gracious Father, 
The sins of the world around us have reminded us of the sin that resides within us, in our hearts as individuals, and within the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not what we ought to be, and for that we ask for forgiveness and we crave your grace. We pray that you would change us and transform us, that you would make us what we should be. Where we fall short, O gracious Father, forgive us. Where we approximate these things, we pray, O God, that you would multiply your grace in our lives so that we would be passionate for your honor and praise, concerned for the lost around us, zealous for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and treasuring your holy law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, sing together hymn number 67A, O God, to us, show mercy and bless us in your grace, a psalm that reminds us that we crave God's blessing for ourselves in order that his blessing might flow to the nations so that he might receive the glory that he deserves. 67A, let's sing that standing.
the budget of the church and also for one book, an organization that translates the scriptures around the world. And our doxology is 572, glory be to the Father. 